pick right there. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Um, this morning, we're going to be continuing on in our series uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, where we have been for a while now. Uh, and specifically this morning, we'll be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse, starting in verse 8, going through the end of chapter 6. Uh, so it's a lot of ground to cover. Um, probably going to move quickly through all of that. But before uh, we start, let me um, pray for us. God, thank you for uh, the opportunity we've had together so far this morning uh, to meet with you in this place, to worship together, to sing together, to uh, be together. And God, now as we transition to a time of um, looking very specifically at your word and diving into your word for just a moment, um, God, I pray that you would be at work to um, allow us to hear what you would have us hear, that you would speak to our hearts and minds. God, I recognize that my words are of little importance, but God, your words are of utmost importance. And so, God, I pray that's what we would hear this morning. Holy Father, thank you for Jesus. Um, thank you that we can gather together around his name. And in the remaining time that we have together, God, I pray that Jesus would be lifted high and we'd be drawn to you because of Christ. And God, it's in your name I pray. Amen. So when it comes to Old Testament wisdom literature, of which Ecclesiastes is a part, there's an old adage that says, the Psalms teach us how to worship, Proverbs, how to behave, Job, how to suffer, Song of Solomon, how to love, and Ecclesiastes, how to live. I'm not sure if all of those characterizations are, are entirely accurate, but I do think that the book of Ecclesiastes definitely teaches us something about life and how to live. And although it seems like this book could be entirely depressing, uh, because on face value there's this constant, or at face, uh, when you just look at it, on its face there's this constant talk of everything being a vapor, a wisp, a smoke, a vanity, something that can't quite be grasped. There's this constant talk of um, death being the great equalizer for everyone. And so at face value, the book of Ecclesiastes can sort of seem uh, a little depressing, a little emotional. But in another sense, Ecclesiastes teaches us how to live uh, with a sense of realism, and a sense of reverence, with humility and with restraint, and with wisdom and with joy. The thing about Ecclesiastes is that the book presents the reality of life under the sun. Ben has talked about this a couple of times when we started through the book of Ecclesiastes. There's this uh, phrase that's used over and over, under the sun, speaking about life on earth as it is. And specifically, the book of Ecclesiastes, I think, paints a picture that life under the sin, I mean, life under the sun it's just not always that great. Now that might sound cynical for a moment. I don't think it's intended to be. Um, Ecclesiastes tells us what life is really like under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1.13 says this, It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It's a difficult truth to hear about life, a difficult truth to hear from Scripture but I think in some sense that is the truth about life, mainly because of the reality of sin 
because of the reality of the fall. Right? We see in the beginning of Genesis that God cursed the ground and imposed hardship on mankind as a result of sin. And that's the reality that we live in under the sun. The, the curse has affected all of us who live under the sun. And we as Christians are not exempt from that hardship. Because we live in a fallen world where sin has infected everything, life is often a burdensome task, a frustrating occupation. Like the author of Hebrews or the teacher in Hebrews says, life is sometimes just an unhappy business. And so for those of us who are believers on this side of the cross who have met Jesus, we wait with groaning for God's ultimate redemption of all things. We wait for God's recreation of all things to change this reality where sin doesn't infect everything and where one day everything will be as God intended. Right, and so some of us, maybe we just haven't thought about, maybe we just haven't come to realize how messed up our fallen world really is. And when we do grasp it, we want it to be different. We wait for it to be different. It should be different because the way things are aren't what God originally intended. But the reality of our current state of being is that life is sometimes difficult. Life is hard. Life is burdensome because of the fall, because of sin. All right, and we like to think that if we just work hard enough, we'll eventually succeed. We'll pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We imagine suffering to be short-term, pain to be the exception to the rule, and failure merely to be the prelude to victory. And sometimes those things might be true. Sometimes it might be true that things go our way. Sometimes it might be true that we're able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make our life better and make things better. But all you need to do is look at today's passage from Ecclesiastes to realize that injustice exists, sin exists. There are people, fallen people in this world who will use one another for their own benefit, for their own gain. To realize that just because you have money doesn't mean you can keep it or that you will keep it or that you should even rely on it. And to realize that just because you have material possessions doesn't mean your life will actually be filled with joy. These illusions that life will always go our way, I think sort of maybe blindside some of us. We get blindsided by setbacks and failures, bewildered by trials and suffering, confused by the pain and the heartache that we experience. Sometimes we as believers talk about these things as if they should be the exception to the rule, and they should be the exception to the rule by God's original intent. But Ecclesiastes tells us that life under the sun is often an unhappy business and maybe pain and heartache, and the infection of sin, and everything, these are not the exception to the rule. Maybe the sooner we face the fact that we live and work in a sin-cursed world, maybe the sooner we face that reality and come to grips with it, the sooner we can get to the place that the author of Ecclesiastes actually wants us to get to.
right? We'll stop expecting things to always get better. We won't be so surprised when they sometimes get worse. And we'll learn to live joyful lives. Not because our circumstances are good. Not because our circumstances will always be good or will necessarily be good. But because we get to experience a good gift of God that the writer of Hebrew, I mean, that the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about as joy. Contentment with God. Trust in God. Get Ecclesiastes for what it is. And on the other side of it, you get joy and peace. Get Ecclesiastes for what it is. And on the other side of it, you learn to trust God over your circumstances and your doubts. That's where the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to go. Now, with all that said, let's dive into our passage this morning. Like I said, we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, through the end of chapter 6. And we're going to take this passage, um, this overall set of verses this morning, in three different movements. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 17 first, and then uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20, and then finally 6, 1 through 12. But Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 17 It reads like this. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. There are really three different sections in this first movement. Verses 8 through 9 talk about how under the sun, in this fallen world, there will always be economic injustice. Doesn't matter the political system, doesn't matter the society, doesn't matter the culture, There will always be economic injustice in some way. From the top of society down, from those entrusted to rule and protect on down, in a sin-cursed world, the drive for money will cause those with power to treat others in an oppressive manner. Verses 10 through 12 talk about how money doesn't actually bring satisfaction in the way that we think it will. We'd all be foolish to think that Having money doesn't actually make life easier. It does. Money affords people the opportunity to have nice experiences and nice things and so forth. But the underlying point here 
uh, from the author is that money alone can't actually bring you the satisfaction you're looking for. In verses 13 through 17, these verses talk about how impermanent money actually is. It's easily lost. Even in a solid business venture that's gone bad, right, money can go away. That money that you think you were about to grab onto, well, it's like a vapor. It's like trying to grab smoke. It's here, and then it's gone. All right, and if we were to take one idea away from this grouping of passage, which is a lot of verses, granted, if we were to take one lesson away from this grouping of verses, I think it should be this. Don't look for money to be something that it actually can't be. Don't look for money to be something it is not. One 19th century pastor said this about money. Money in truth is one of the most unsatisfying of possessions. It takes away some cares, no doubt, but it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. There is trouble in the getting of it. There is anxiety in the keeping it. There are the temptations in the use of it. There is the guilt in the abuse of it. There is the sorrow in the losing of it. There is the perplexity in the disposing of it. And two-thirds of all the strifes and quarrels in the world arise from one simple cause, money. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus puts it this way. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word for money that's used in Matthew chapter 6 here is the word mammon. Um, sometimes it's translated in mammon, mammon in certain uh, translations of the Bible. But it means money and possessions personified as someone's Lord and master. And the point being, uh, money can certainly do things for you, for others, but money makes a terrible master. Money makes a terrible God. And as an idol, money will not do for you what you think it will. So I think the point here is that the worship of money will only lead to disappointment. We talked a lot about idols last week. I'm not going to dive deeply into that. But the worship of money will only lead to disappointment. So what we should take away from this first set of verses here in this, um, in, in, that we've looked at this morning. The second movement of this passage is verses 18 through 20, and it reads like this. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. If we were to take one idea, one lesson away from this group of verses, I think it should be this. Joy only truly comes from God. 
Joy is a gift from God. Money, possessions, whatever else, those things can't actually give you the joy that God can. Money can make things better for your life, but they can't do what God can do. Binding everything together in the book of Ecclesiastes are three uh, imperatives or three commands that the author, the, the teacher, repeats over and over and over throughout the chapter, I mean throughout the book. Three separate commands. The first one that we see over and over is this, is to revere God or sometimes put to fear God. In the book of Ecclesiastes, like in Proverbs, uh, fear means to trust, obey, and honor, right? Not to be terrified. We see this command repeated in chapters 3, 5, 7, 8, and 12. Second imperative that we see over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes is to remember that God judges our deeds, we see this in chapters 3, 5, 7, 8, 11, and 12. And the third imperative that you see over and over and over is actually the only imperative that we see in this group of verses this morning, and it's the one that's in verse 18. You see it in other places throughout Ecclesiastes as well, including chapters 2, 8, and 9. But the imperative is this. It's to find enjoyment or joy in the everyday stuff of life. And the eating and drinking and working and the living of life. Although it seems strange to say so, J.I. Packer said that there was a theology of joy that runs through and undergirds this book of Ecclesiastes. He says that the book of Ecclesiastes actually lays the foundation for celebrating joy as God's good gift. And for recognizing the potential for joy to be found in the everyday stuff of life, even when the circumstances around us aren't like we would want them to be. There's this interesting thing that happens in this passage. Right earlier in this passage, before we got to verse 18, the, the preacher or the author here in Ecclesiastes, when talking about the vanity of money, he hardly mentions God at all. And then when we get to verses 18 through 20, he mentions God repeatedly. And I think part of what's being communicated there is that whatever joy is to be found under the sun, it has to be God-centered and it has to come from God. Without God under the sun, without God, life under the sun is meaningless and miserable especially when we are worshiping the wrong things, pursuing things that actually won't give us meaning and joy. But when we know God, when God is the center, the everyday stuff of life like eating and drinking and worship and working and the possession of money, those things can actually be a blessing. Look at the phrasing in verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Right? He's saying whatever you have in the way of money and possessions, God is giving them to you to be enjoyed. Earlier in the passage, though, the preacher was listing all the ways that money was vanity. And all the way that money and possessions will not satisfy you at all. 
They're a vanity. They're meaningless. They're like grabbing onto smoke. But here he says, with what God has given you, you have the ability to actually enjoy it. What's the difference? What's the change? The difference here is the realization that God is the one who gives. God is the one who gives wealth and possessions. God is the one who gives joy. The difference is the realization that all we have comes from God to begin with. And with God at the center of it all, there is joy to be found in what God has provided. With the realization that when Jesus rose from the grave to defeat all of our idols, there's joy to be found in the fact that we actually don't have to pursue these other things that will never satisfy. We have the ability to have God at the center and to be satisfied by what God provides and to have the joy that God offers. Right? Trusting God for our provision rather than trusting our provisions to be our Lord and Savior that's the key to joy seen right here in the book of Ecclesiastes. The final movement of this whole grouping of verses is chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. It's a lot of verses. I'm going to read through them here. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires... Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, as it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after whim. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute what one, with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he possesses like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This passage is that thing that happens in Ecclesiastes where uh, the author often talks about death being the great equalizer for us all, the vanity of things. We ended chapter 5 with the idea that God being at the center of everything allows one to enjoy what they have, be it great or small. And in chapter 6, we see these pictures of life under the sun where people don't have that joy. In verse 2, there's somebody who has all they could ever want, but they don't have joy. In verses 3 through 6, there's this exaggerated possibility of a man living many years and fathering many children, 
But since he can't find joy in life's things, that it all seems to be just trying to grab after smoke, and it's all going to end in death, and what does it matter? Then in verses 7 through 12, um, something else begins to happen, and it begins to mirror some things that we see in the New Testament. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. I think part of what the author is getting at here, or, or what we should see maybe in the passage, is that there are two ways to be content in life. One way um, that might be a possibility, even though it's not going to satisfy according to the uh, writer of Ecclesiastes, is to endlessly accumulate more and more and more and more. But a more realistic way to be satisfied is to learn to trust God to be our provider and to be content in his provision. And he may provide a lot or he may provide a little. He may provide more than we need or he may not. But the goal is not to get more. The goal is to learn to trust God and to be content. And in that contentment, find joy. Right? If we're to take one idea or one lesson away from this grouping of verses, I think it should be this. That there's a place for us as followers of God, as believers, as Christians, to pursue joy by learning to be content with what God has. Learning to trust God rather than to trust what we have. Overall, in these verses here um, from Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and 6, I think the overall thrust of what is being communicated, right, has to do with those very ideas of joy and contentment. There's a lot here about the vanity of wealth and the reality of injustice and all these other things. There's a lot there, uh, a lot that you could go to in this passage, but overall, with what we see at the end of chapter 5 and this grouping of verses, I think what we need to take away is that joy is a gift of God. Joy can be found in learning to be uh, content with what God has for you. And so just as a way to finish our time together this morning, I want to just talk through three ideas about how to pursue joy in the Christian life. These ideas are not unique to me. Uh, they actually come from a book J.I. Packer wrote named God's Plans for You. Uh, J.I. Packer is, uh, I think, uh, a hero of the faith. And um, if you were to go and read some of what Packer wrote, uh, you would find that Ecclesiastes is actually ended up being his favorite book of the Bible, which is interesting. Um, but number one thing to realize about pursuing joy is this. Pursuing joy starts with the awareness that one is loved. Christians know themselves to be loved in a way that no one else does. We know that God the Father loved us such that his only son died on the cross in shame and agony for our benefit so that we might have direct access to God the Father. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Romans 8, 32 and 38 and 39. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pursuing joy starts with the awareness that as children of the Father, as believers, we are loved in a way that is different. We're loved in a way that is greater. We're loved by the God of the universe who acted on our behalf. Number two, pursuing joy continues with the acknowledgement that God is with us in the midst of our circumstances, whether they be good or bad. The reality that Ecclesiastes presents is a life that's difficult, a life that's hard, a life where things won't always go your way, where sometimes things will absolutely be bad. But in the midst of our circumstances, be they good or bad, the believer can acknowledge that God is sovereign, even though it may not feel like it sometimes. We can move forward with the knowledge that God is for us, even when that's hard to grasp onto and believe. Romans 8.28 says, We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We may not always understand or agree with God's purposes, but we can rest assured that he's working to draw us to himself to make us more like Christ in every way. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4, For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Right? Contentment with God's provision, that's the soil in which Paul's joy was planted and grows. Pursuing joy continues with the acknowledgement that God is with us in the midst of our circumstances, be they good or bad. Thirdly, Pursuing joy moves forward when we understand that we already possessed the most valuable thing that we could ever possess as a child of God. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. There is nothing more valuable, there is nothing more that we as humanity actually need than to be rightly related to God. And Jesus actually gives us the ability to do that. Jesus has made a way for us to do that. Life may be hard, we may not have the resources or possessions we need, but we do have the ability to gain something of immeasurable worth. And that is direct access to God, the ability to know God and to be rightly related to him. Pursuing joy in the Christian life starts with the awareness that one is loved 
beyond compare because of Christ. It continues with the acknowledgement that God is with us in the midst of our circumstances, be they good or bad. And it moves forward when we come to understand that we already possess the most valuable thing we could possibly possess if we're children of God. I would invite you as we move toward a close this morning to, to maybe just sit back and reflect and ask yourself whether joy is something real to you or whether it's something that you might feel like the writer of Ecclesiastes says is vanity, a wisp of smoke, something that you can't quite grasp. I found myself uh, this past week in a situation um, where I was frustrated, angry, discontent, and it hit me like a ton of bricks that I have to stand on this stage this morning <laughs> and talk about finding contentment and joy in Christ. Right in that moment, those things, contentment and joy, were not real to me. I had to take a step back and acknowledge that, pray about it, and intentionally choose to pursue joy and commitment and God's provision and what God has done, right? And I'm sure that's true for all of us in many situations. The joy and contentment is not something that's real to us. Joy and contentment are something that's far off, something that we can't quite grab a hold of. But in the midst of that feeling, in the midst of that sense in your life, whatever it is, I would invite you to remember what we just said, that you're loved, that God is with you, and that God has already given you something precious. And because of those truths, we can grab on to what the writer of Ecclesiastes is pointing us toward, joy. We can move towards joy as we begin to change the way we think about these things, as we begin to change the way that we perceive these things, right? So the question for us this morning is, will you practice the joy that is yours because of the work of Christ? Will you pursue it? Will you allow these truths to change your way of thinking, to change your perspective? So the life is not about the circumstances. It's not about the bad. It's not about whether things are going good or not. It's about the fact that Jesus has acted on our behalf, that God is with us, and that God has already given us the most precious thing he could possibly give us. Will you pursue joy? Will you take the steps to think differently about life and the circumstances around you because of God, because of Christ, because of what Christ has done for us? That's the invitation this morning. It's simple. I don't have anything else to offer. The writer of Ecclesiastes is pushing us toward joy. And part of the way we get there is to think differently because of God's action on our behalf, because God is with us, and because God has already blessed us with the most incredible thing that he could possibly bless us with. And that's the knowledge of him and a relationship with him. We're gonna enter into a time of response like we do every Sunday morning. Um, during this time of response, I would invite you uh, to do a couple of things. Um, one might be that you need to sit where you are and pray for a minute, reflect for a minute, Grab somebody else and pray with them if necessary, but just maybe reflect on what it is that God might have for you this morning 
what God has been speaking to our hearts and minds. We have an opportunity to give. Many of us give in other ways through our bank account or digitally or, or whatever it might be. But we have an opportunity now. There's a giving basket in the back and an opportunity just to remember that all we have comes from God to begin with. And as we give, it's an act of worship, acknowledging God's good provision. Uh, we'll have an opportunity to sing with the band in a moment and continue to worship through singing. Uh, but we also have an opportunity to come and take communion. We take communion every Sunday here at Redemption. Um, and we do it uh, because in the taking of communion, we're remembering the good work of Christ on our behalf and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it and that it's true. And so if you're here and you are um, not a member of Redemption, um, we would still invite you to come and take communion uh, this morning if you can remember uh, the reality of what Christ has done and proclaim that it's good and true. I would invite you to come and take communion with us. Um, we will come down the middle aisle here, take the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, uh, remember the body of Christ broken for us, remember the blood of Christ shed for us. There's also prepackaged cups uh, if you would rather take communion that way. But I'm going to pray for us and we'll continue on with that time of communion. God, thank you for this uh, reminder from your word this morning that you are for us. God, that you have acted on our behalf. God, that you've done something great. You've given us something wonderful. God, I pray that the reality of your good gifts would sink into our hearts and minds this morning. God, that we would be able to experience contentment and joy because of your work, God, because of what you've done for us. God, over the next few minutes as we continue to uh, reflect and respond, pray that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and minds that we would hear from you. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we can celebrate his work now, that we can remember it, that we can proclaim it to one another. God, we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.